the Christmas story has a lot to teach us about life and we struggle and we have hurts and we want things to go right and better. Um, and I'm, I was mentioning to Helen earlier in the week, I just came I said, oh, I'm just really excited to be preaching about Christmas. Um, I look at the Christmas story, the first chapters of the New Testament, and the first chapters of the Old Testament are just so packed with important foundational truths. Um, I hope today that we can see that and really apply that to our lives. As we start, let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for this Christmas season, um, and we thank you for the truths in your word that, that speak to our lives so clearly. Lord, help us have ears to hear. Help us to receive your word, to not just be hearers of it, but to apply it to our lives, to, to do it, and in, in doing it, to, to please you, to live lives worthy of your calling. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a couple days after Christmas. Um, I guess since they start playing Christmas songs in November, should be no problem to continue to preach about Christmas, right? For a whole nother month, if it was me. Um, I really am so helped by the scriptures and, and the Christmas story. You know, and typically as we think about Christmas, the general feeling that we have about it is, is, is peacefulness and hopefulness. Um, I mean, one of our favorite songs. So let's even just sing it really quickly. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Doesn't that just conjure up certain feelings of this peacefulness of, of Christmas? This baby, tender and mild, there in the manger. All is calm, all is bright. And generally, the account of Christmas in, in Luke that we read, just even close your eyes as I read this, and just it kind of continues with that same feeling of peacefulness and hopefulness. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the, tame, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, an, there was with the, the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Well, let's, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the, what the shepherds told them. But Mary, she treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. A very familiar passage, but a, a beautiful one. Paul, can I get you to turn that fan off for me? Thanks. But now, I think it's really important. There's kind of a, another side of Christmas that we typically choose to ignore. Um, but it's a very important one in, in understanding that. And I want to read this it's another biblical account of Christmas, but it's one that's not normally shared. I've never seen it on a Christmas card. I've never heard it preached. Um, and it comes from Revelation 12, verses 5 to 7. Listen to this account of the Christmas story. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and crying out in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven crowns or diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Merry Christmas. Very different account, isn't it? Well, let's try to unravel it. This uh, story here is out of Revelation 12. Um, there's a lot of, prof it's a chapter of prophecy, very difficult chapter to understand. Verses 5 to 7, I feel pretty good about interpreting this way. The rest of the chapter is, is very difficult. And I'll leave that to Paul to preach someday. Um, <laughs> But how do we understand this passage? All right, it starts with a woman clothed with the moon, the sun, moon, and these 12 stars. Now, can anybody here remember a Bible story that involves a sun and a moon and 12 stars? Yeah, I heard that. Who was it? Joseph. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, has a, story, has a dream where 
he says, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And it was a prophecy that he would eventually go to Egypt, become a great ruler, and his father and mother and his brothers would come and rely upon him to save them from famine. Okay, and so uh, I believe this is a reference to, to Jacob and his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, which means struggles with God. I love that. The people of God, their name means struggles with God, and it's a good thing. It's looked at as a good thing to wrestle with God. Some translate it wrestles with God, struggles with God. Okay, so there's this woman from the, the, the tribe of Israel. Okay, so she's a Jew. She's pregnant. She's going to give birth. Okay, who do we think this woman is? I think it's safe to say this would be Mary. Okay, all right, then, and then it says down here later that she was going to bear a child and the child would be one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, this phrase, a rod of iron, comes from Psalm 2. The whole psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm about the Messiah coming. And especially here in, well, we'll start. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations your, inherit, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. So talking about this Messiah who would come, many think this will be in the millennium as he reigns over the nations. And, uh, a rod of iron, iron was the strongest metal at that time. Some call it a scepter, like the king's scepter. So it's a picture of strength of this Messiah, this Savior that was to come. So she's giving birth to this one who is the Messiah. So I think it's very clearly talking about Mary. And then it talks about this red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And what's great is in Revelation, I don't have it on the slide here, but uh, just down to verse 9, it very clearly says, I'll read it, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Okay, so it's very clear that that's Satan here, and he's wanting to devour the child when it's born. So a very beautiful picture, so poetic and symbolic. Uh, it's like a mystery you have to unravel to see it, but it's the Christmas story. Him wanting to devour the child is speaking of Herod, who sends his troops later to kill all the children, all the boys, two years and under. Okay, Herod was influenced by Satan to do this evil thing, to try to wipe out Jesus by killing all these children. So this is, this is the Christmas story also. And uh, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? But I think it's important to realize we have to balance the, both of these views, the, the peacefulness, the hopefulness of Christmas, balanced with the fact that we... The background of all that's going on is this amazing spiritual battle that we all are involved in today. And we live our lives with this paradox now too. This crazy spiritual battle and yet there's hope and there's uh, things that we're dealing with day to day. And we've got to live with the two. You know, I've heard in Africa, many of the churches there, they end their Christmas pageants with Herod's troops coming and killing the babies. 
That is very interesting. Why, why don't we do that? It wasn't part of our pageant last week. Patty, what's the deal? <laughs> well, I think it's a terrifying story. I, I'd be hesitant to tell that to children. This giant, fiery red dragon is going to devour the baby Jesus. Okay? Now, I actually, I told Paul a few weeks ago, he said, well, maybe you could do a children's moment during Christmas. I said, oh, sure, I've got this idea about one. I was thinking of telling that story to the kids. I was thinking about this this morning. What was I thinking? <laughs> Uh, but that has not been one of my strengths as a father. We were laughing about it in the car on the way down here. When my kids were younger, I won, uh, much too young, one, I got this idea that it'd be really fun to watch a horror movie together, and I picked out this one by, what is it, M. Shamalaya? A Signs, I think it is. Oh, it is terrifying. For years, our kids watched that, and uh, they had a hard time going to bed that night. And for years, anytime we'd mention movies, they'd go, Dad, don't show us that movie again. Or They still haven't forgotten it. They, they don't like horror movies to this day because I traumatized them so badly. So I don't know why, Paul, you're having me teach uh, parenting classes. Um, but it's a, it's a terrifying story. But it is part of... Christmas that we need to embrace and part of our lives that we need to embrace, that we are living in a spiritual battle against a formidable foe who is opposed to all the things of God. And so Christmas will remind us that we are all involved in a spiritual war, in spiritual warfare. Another very important message of Christmas is that it reminds us that life is not about acquiring physical wealth, about being comfortable or getting things to work smoothly. In other words, the prosperity gospel is wrong. God's primary uh, objective is not just to bless us, to make us comfortable, to give us wealth, and to make life go smoothly. We would all like that. There's something in us that longs for that. And the reason we long for that, to be totally blessed, for, to be comfortable and for things to go well is because one day it will, and that will be in heaven. But it's not the objective of this life. And, and we've got to change our thinking about that. And it's really a very dangerous teaching, the prosperity gospel, because it gives us totally wrong expectations about what life should be like. And it's very difficult when expectations are not met, what do we say? We, I find myself saying this. Something goes wrong. God, what did I do wrong? Things are supposed to go smoothly. I'm, I read my Bible this morning. I go to church every week. I, I even preach. I'm a missionary, God. Shouldn't things go smoothly? It's such a, con, a con, convoluted way of thinking. And it's poisoned our thinking. But Christmas so powerfully addresses this. And I want to look at this. The two accounts about Christmas. <laughs> Out of Matthew first, and then and then Luke. Uh, I'm sorry. We're going to start with Luke, in chapter one, verse thirty-three. It says this about Mary. Mary was. Uh, let's see. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse twenty-eight. The angel went to her and said, "Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you." 
Mary was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting that might be. The angel said, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you'll give him the name Jesus. Mary then asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So here's Mary. What does it say about Mary? She's highly favored. The Lord is with her. And then God tells her, you're going to give birth to a child out of wedlock. It's going to look like it's out of wedlock. How, how comfortable was that for Mary? Do you think she would have ever felt shame about that? Sure, in the village, everybody, oh, there's Mary. She's the one that had Why would God do that to, to someone who, that's how God shows his favor on somebody? The people that God's with, that's what he allows them to go through? Prosperity gospel sure would say, that's not, how, how, how can they deal with that? But it continues. In verse 5 to 7, it talks about Elizabeth is going to have a child in her own old age. She who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. Okay, and, and of Elizabeth, uh, it talks about her. It says she, that she was blessed. But later, it also says, she mentions that God has removed her shame. Okay, she's going to give birth to John the Baptist. Another case here. Person that's blessed by God, but she was barren. And it says her husband, Zechariah, was a righteous man. It says she was righteous. It says he was blameless. It said Zechariah were blameless in following the commands of God. And yet she was barren. Well, how can that be? God, aren't you supposed to make everything work smoothly in our life? And later when she gives birth, you know what she says? God has removed my shame. She felt Shame. Here she's righteous and blameless, and she felt so much shame because for some reason she wasn't able to give birth. Is this the way God deals with those that are righteous and blameless? Isn't everything supposed to go smoothly when you live a righteous life? Then we know Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem. I looked it up. It's 80 miles to Bethlehem. And the biblical account doesn't say that she had a donkey. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But even with a donkey, they'd say, 20 miles a day for four days on a donkey? God, I thought you were going to help my life be comfortable. Doesn't fit. This one that he's chosen, Joseph, it said he was a righteous man. Mary, God's favor was upon her. Yet they have to endure that. Then when there's no room in the inn, they have to place the baby in a manger. I try to avoid using that word. It was a feed trough. And we need to remember that. It's where the animals ate their feed. It was stinky. Okay? They didn't have a nice crib with a beautiful cotton lining to put the baby into. God, this is your very son. And you're not concerned... First and foremost with his comfort. 
if God is this way with his own son, should it surprise why does it surprise us then when our comfort doesn't isn't always his first priority? It shouldn't surprise us if we really will allow the Christmas story to get ingrained in us. Then in Luke 2, 22 to 24, if you look in your Bibles on this passage, uh, it's really an amazing passage. There's a little footnote. It says, When the time for their purification according to the law had been completed, Joseph and Mary took the baby to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. And then there's a reference there to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. And you go there, and it's talking about this pair of pigeons. Sorry, Leviticus chapter 8. And what's interesting... Leviticus chapter 12, excuse me, verse 8. Okay. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. And what did it say here in Luke that they offered? The doves and the pigeons doesn't even mention the lamb. God, you allow your son to be born in a manger. And then for the first ceremony, for this purification, you can't even provide for your own son to have a lamb. Mary and Joseph are so poor, they have to do plan B. And give pigeons or doves instead of a lamb. Well, didn't they get gold, frankincense, and myrrh? It hadn't come yet. God, couldn't you have arranged the wise men to come before that so they could have afforded it? Sure, he could have, but but he didn't. Then, while they're at the temple in Luke chapter 2, they see Simeon, who has been there, and he has a prophetic word for them. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, dismiss your servant, me, Simeon, in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Tells him this Messiah is bringing salvation and revelation, not just to the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. The father and mother of the child marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This child's going to bring the falling and the rising of many people. So many people will be blessed, but many people, those that don't believe in him, will not be blessed. Many will rise, many will fall because of him. But then, what does he end with? Listen to these haunting words. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
Can you imagine being Mary, hearing about these wonderful things that God is going to do through this son he's allowed me to give birth to, through the Messiah? But then he ends by saying, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Do you think she remembered those words the rest of her life? Those are unforgettable words. When you know this, these are the words of the prophet speaking God's words to her. Her whole life, I'm sure she would have wondered, was that comfortable to think about? That a, a sword was going to pierce her own soul? You know, Jesus' father wasn't around in his ministry years. He died sometimes before that. I wonder if Mary thought, Lord, is, was, is, that, is that the sword? Losing my husband? Was that the sword that was to pierce my soul? Or maybe Jesus begins his ministry and, and the husband's not there. And she's so sad over that. That Joseph couldn't be there to see their son. Was that what she said? Lord, is that the bitterness of my soul? This soul sword that will go on my soul? And the things that unfolded as people rejected Jesus. She wondered, oh Lord. But ultimately it was seeing her own son crucified on the cross. I think that was probably the day she realized, oh Lord, that's the sword you spoke of. Some would say, what, what kind of a way is that, Lord, to, to treat this woman who your favor is upon, whom you are with, to speak haunting words to her that for 33 years you'll have to live with not understanding what they are. In Matthew's account, we see things as well that, that are disturbing to us. Okay, Mary becomes pregnant. Okay, and then it says, um, give the, the dream comes. Because, okay, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Mary has found out the angels appeared to her and told her, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. Now she has to go tell Joseph that she's pregnant. How uncomfortable is that for Mary to try to explain? Joseph, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to be a little hard to believe here. But it's real. It was God's Holy Spirit is at work here. This is a thing of God. I'm going to have a baby. But I didn't have sex with anybody else. Okay, did Joseph believe her? No, he didn't. It says he made plans to divorce her. And it was then after that the evangel appears to him and shows him that, no, this is God. So can you imagine from Joseph's standpoint, this woman that he loves, who is a woman of God, at least seemed to be until that point, and now is trying to pass off onto him this lie that she's having a baby, but she didn't have sex with anybody? Can you imagine how devastating that would be for him? I was trying to think of, of an equivalent. I guess it would be like for uh, us husbands, if our wife came and said, I know this is going to sound weird, but God 
he, you know, there's a guy at church that's been divorced, and God just told me that he needed comfort, and God told me to go and have intimate relationships with him. Uh, and I did, but it, it was God that told me that. Come on. <laughs> wow. But that's the way the story happened. I just include this in Matthew 2, 1 to 3. It talks about when the wise men came, that they talked about this star that meant this king that was to come. And it said, Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled by this. And I thought, well, why were they troubled? Because they want things to work smoothly. They want to be comfortable. They don't want there to be a new king that's going to wrestle with the old king and there's going to be turmoil. They're just like us today. We want things to go smoothly. We want life to work right. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verse 8. Wow, if we ever talk about a bold-faced lie. Then Herod called the Magi, the wise men, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Wow. Later, the wise men go, give their gifts, and they're warned not to go back to Herod. And they realize that Herod's heart, what he said wasn't true. Herod did not want to worship the child, but he said it right to their face. This is the kind of world God allowed his baby to be born into. That then this king sends the troops. And we think about this in Matthew 2, verse 13, where the angel appears to Joseph. Okay, when the, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take your child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Wow. Was God really a priority for Joseph and Mary and his son Jesus to be comfortable and for things to go smoothly? That night they had to run. And then later in Egypt, at some point in their life, they would have heard about what happened in Bethlehem. And just think... The wise men came, and it says in the Bible, they came to the, the room where Jesus was. So they had moved out of the stable, and some think it could have been several weeks to even up to a year uh, before the wise men came. And they're living there. And just think of all the... When you know when you're pregnant and somebody else is pregnant, don't you... you, you there's a connection between the mothers and even the father. Oh, or you just had a child. So you know all those... Parents, all the babies that Mary and Joseph knew, even if it had just been a few weeks, I'm sure they would have met many of those other newborns. And then to hear later that Herod's troops came and killed every one of the boy babies under two. How comfortable was that? How smoothly was Mary and Joseph's new married life going? And it shows this life. Oh, some would say, oh, but look, they got gold. 
See, God blessed them. The prosperity gospel is true. If you're faithful, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, frankincense and myrrh symbolizing the things that are used at a burial. Okay, and the gold. Okay, yeah, they did receive gold. If it wasn't for the gold, they wouldn't have been able to get to Egypt and live in Egypt. And there's no indication that when they came back that they were rich. So it may not have been that much. But God provided just enough for them. He didn't provide it in time for them to get the lamb at the purification ceremony, but he did provide it. That's a very weak argument for the prosperity gospel. No, our being comfortable and our getting wealth and comfort and life going smoothly is not what life is about. Not this life. In heaven, wow, we'll have all of those peace and blessing and wealth and things going smoothly. But it's not in this life. And we need to have that truth deeply ingrained in our hearts. And Christmas, we need to make sure that the Christmas story does that for us. The third thing that Christmas reminds us is that Jesus left an example for us on how to live life. And we need to look at his example and we need to follow it. In John chapter 20, Jesus said some amazing words. Just one little sentence, but it often gets overlooked. And we read that just earlier. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you to the disciples. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Some versions say it this way. As the Father sent me, so send I you. There's a song called, So Send I You, based on this idea. But the idea here is, in the manner that God sent me to the earth, now I'm sending you out into the world. Those words weren't just for the disciples. This is Jesus' philosophy of ministry. How do you do ministry? You follow my example. The way, the manner that I entered the world and dealt with people, that's the manner you're to use. I'm giving you an example. Follow in my steps. Well, what were? I want to just pick out three things. There's many that we could talk about, but I think there's three, especially at Christmas, that I want to focus on. This idea, how was Jesus sent? In what manner was he sent? First of all, he willingly gave up his rights and privileges. In Philippians, this amazing passage where we see him giving up his rights. Philippians chapter 2. Another, really, account of the Christmas story. But it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on to say, therefore, because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place. Oh, we have the scripture here. But this is the key. He willingly gave up his rights and privileges. He humbled himself and became a man. Here he was in heaven with 24 hours a day, eternally the angels and the cherubim worshiping him. 
And he left that to come and be born in a stinky stable. Now often we, the way we celebrate Christmas, we, we forget how difficult these matters were. Um, I've thought before, our tradition now in our family is I, I made a, we had one in China, I had a bamboo manger and we'd get straw and we'd put a little doll of uh, wrapped Jesus in a white towel and put him in the manger and we put our presents around the manger and I made another manger this year. But I've often thought, you know, this doesn't capture it. You know, it's here on this hardwood floor in our house, and I got a little spotlight on it. And, you know, what I need to do is go get a cow patty and, you know, kind of put it under the manger so there's a little bit of a strange smell in the house. Um, that would be a little more accurate. But, but we like, we prefer our pristine, peaceful, hopeful Christmas, don't we? Well, oh, so he left his rights. He left heaven where he was with the Trinity in the community that they have, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's constantly being worshipped. He leaves that to come to earth. He said, in the manner that the Father sent me, I send you. We need to be willing to give up our rights. I'm going to talk about some specific applications, but we should never say, oh, but I'm college educated. I can't do that. That's, I'm not going to get involved sweeping up that throw-up of that kid or whatever. Jesus had the greatest gap of giving up rights to go so far to come to earth. He was willing to do that. He did it to leave us an example what we should follow in his steps. Also, he was a servant leader. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be this way among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was a servant leader. We need to be servant leaders, and all of us are, are leaders at one point in our life. As parents, we are leading our family. We all have opportunities to lead. We need to follow Jesus' model. Then lastly, Jesus was never aloof, but he fully engaged with people, their cultures, and their lives. He rubbed life on life with people. He got his hands dirty. He got down there among them at their level. God didn't create the world and then step back and just watch what happened. He sent his son right in the middle of it. You know, it's been said, one of the most perplexing questions is, why did God create evil in the world? Why did he create a world that would have evil? But really, I think the most perplexing, most wondrous question is, why would God create that world and then send his son into the middle of it and receive the spit from people, the rejection of people, and ultimately be crucified on a cross. Now that's an amazing question. Why would he allow his son to leave heaven to enter this world full of evil? It's because he is an amazing God and loves us so much that he would do that. We shouldn't stand aloof 
We sh should get involved in people's lives. We should get our hands dirty in life. We're going to talk about how we can do that. Contemporary leadership model is the pyramid. This guy is the boss, and these people do what he says, and they do what he, they say, and they do what they say. And that's how the world works in your company. Who's your boss, and you do what they tell them. But Jesus' model was completely different. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be the servant of everybody. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're the boss, then you need to serve these guys and these people and make sure they're serving these and serving them. The leader serves. He's a servant leader. Totally opposite of the world. I'm going to ask um, Kelly to come. I want us to be blessed by this powerful song that captures these truths. I've always been mesmerized by this line, hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. God was so amazing, calling, creating the stars, putting in them positions, and yet those same hands to surrender to the nails of the cross. <coughs> This is a photo uh, taken by the Hubble telescope that's, I guess, been gone viral. These, this picture here, these are not stars, but galaxies. Each of these represents a galaxy. This is our galaxy, the Milky Way. Within that, eight planets and the sun is on one little teeny spot in one of these spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy, which has like 200 million different stars in it. And then each one of those 200 million, that belongs to a dot right here. The incredible thing is, this picture that that telescope took is one forty millionth of the total sky. They said, so it would be like going out at night and taking a needle in your hand and looking through the eye hole, that would represent the 10,000 galaxies represented in that picture. We are so small... And God is so big, yet he is mindful of us. That kind of creator that created that was willing to come and die for us. So we're involved in a spiritual war. Life is not about acquiring wealth, comfort, getting things to work smoothly. But it's about glorifying God, enjoying him, loving others. And Jesus left us an example. And I just want us to talk about, well, how does this look? practically in our lives how can we follow jesus's example and i just want to give a, f a few different roles to whet our appetite for this as a missionary jesus example is so powerful it's the reason my my wife we're involved in a, a project agricultural project and she's out there and she's got these long q-tips and the pigs that we're working with all have some disease and sores and putting this ointment on them while there these six pigs are trying to break down the barrier and, and get out. Um, she's down there among the people with the farmer right next to it, to her. Another time, um, there was a man who was dying. He was an artist that Helen had developed a relationship with. His family, for some reason, wasn't taking care of him, and she would come and help to wipe him. They wouldn't wipe him. His whole bed stunk, but she would do that. She'd clean his hands. Because she was following the model of Jesus. She gave up her rights. She didn't say, oh, hey, I used to work at Disney. I have a college degree. That's, I, I, don't, I don't do that. No, she followed Jesus' example. 
There was another girl who died of leukemia, but she was a high school student and had accepted the Lord. And it's a long story, but we came back, and right the day before we came back from stateside, she died. And her family didn't understand her faith, but we went out to be with them. It was late at night, at 11 at night. The taxis wouldn't even go out. We couldn't even tell them we were going to a funeral because they wouldn't take us there because they're so afraid of death. But we, I helped the father take his daughter's body, and by that time... The, it, there was like a gel that had formed under, and we put her at the right at the specific time he had to put her in the casket. But we were out there among these people, entering fully into their culture, even though it was very uncomfortable and we didn't understand everything, but we were following Jesus' example. I had a teacher uh, at Biola, uh, Judy Lingenfelter. She worked in the island of Yap, and all the women there went topless. And so eventually she realized if she was going to enter their culture like Jesus, she went topless with them. Um, and then one day some UN and, uh, people came to the island, and she said she about fainted when she saw them coming, and she <laughs> ran and grabbed a shirt and put it on. Um, or a friend. How, as friends, do we follow Jesus' example? Well, it's like people whose friend gets cancer and their hair falls out. And they go and they shave their head. And they enter into their life. They don't stand aloof from that person. That's how you live Jesus' life. They're following Jesus' example to do that. Watching a friend and uh, babysitting a friend and their child has a dirty diaper and you wipe their diaper. That's following Jesus' example. Or teachers that don't just teach their lessons, but they go home and they visit their students. They go to their home and figure out what's going on in their family life, entering into their life. Or my kids, I remember hearing them, they have spirit week. One day it's pajama day. Some of the teachers enter in. They wear their pajamas to school. Crazy hair day. They do their hair, crazy hair. They, they enter into the life. We had a Halloween party. The Koga family, they all come in costumes. They all enter into it. That's Jesus' way of life. We don't stand aloof. We enter into people's lives even when they're messy. Pastor Paul is a wonderful example for us. And Kate. They're the pastors in many churches. They wouldn't do this. But Pastor Paul and Kate, they're involved in the accountability groups just like everybody else. After church... They don't say, oh, well, we're the, I'm the pastor. I don't do dishes. I don't, I don't do trash. No, Paul and Kate are always there cleaning up with everybody else because they're following Jesus' example of giving up their rights, any status, and serving, being servant leaders, humbling themselves. When I was in the military, we had, we'd go out for a month when I was involved with a ground launch cruise missile, defending it, and We'd have 44 policemen in foxholes. And in Belgium, once you dug down six inches, you'd start getting water. But the guys would have to sleep in these foxholes. And the inspectors one time came through, and or we were part of this inspection team, and one of the guys started yelling at the, the flight, the top guy, Major Demi, I remember it, because he'd gotten a cot and he was sleeping in the back of the hospital truck. It was nice and warm. And this major just let him have it. He said, what are you doing? You should be, your troops are all out there sleeping in these wet foxholes. And he said, well, they'd think I was stupid if I had a chance to have a dry place to sleep. They, they'd think I was stupid if I didn't take advantage of it. 
And his argument sounded, yeah, that's logical. He said, yeah, you've got to give them a reason to want to get promoted. But we thought about it, and it, it's, it sounds reasonable. But Jesus' way of leadership is a leadership by example. He gets out there and is down and dirty doing what others do. Business people. Great business people, leaders that get out on the factory line. You've been heard of leaders that go and take a shift in, in, in the uh, assembly line so that they know what the workers are going through. Leaders that are there to serve the people that work for them. They invite them to their house to get to know them. They take a shift for them. They, have, they sponsor marriage classes because they're concerned about their workers. They get out among them. They know what their problems are. That's living like Jesus. I, had a, a, um, a, I think of Chick-fil-A. What an incredible company. When they hire people, they sit down. One of the things they do is talk about their goals. And almost inevitably, they develop people so that they are too qualified to keep working at Chick-fil-A and they go on to other things. Their job, their job is to develop that person so they no longer work there. And they want to bless them and help them achieve their goals. And in that, to disciple them to know the ways of Christ. I had a coach in football, Coach Bamonte. And every year, one of the highlights of the year, he was in charge of the defense. He would come out, and he was, he was in his 40s. And he would put on the football gear he wore in college, which was this helmet that had these bubble around the ear. And the face mask was made of plastic. And the shoulder pads were made of leather. And the pants were kind of droopy. And he'd come out and he would play against us, against our team, and tackle with the rest of them. And that was one of the highlights of the year. He got out there and laughed and, and played with the rest of us. Uh, he was living out the life of Jesus, giving up his rights, getting down and dirty, not being aloof. As parents... When our kids are young, we get down there on the floor with them. As they grow older and they have projects at school, some of our family's best memories are uh, helping Teo and Kia with science projects that were due, and we're all using the glue gun and chopsticks and trying to build a solar house. And we don't say, oh, well, that's your school assignment. I'm not going to help you with that. You, know, you need to learn how to manage your time. No, we're a family, and we get involved in their lives. That's following Jesus' example, the example he most powerfully left us at Christmas. There are so many ways to do that. I want pray that you'll think more. What's that going to mean in my life to live in following Jesus' example that he left us? Let's pray. Father, this Christmas we do just want to thank you. Lord, it's, it's so hard to do something if you've never seen how to do it. But Lord, you came, you left your place of privilege and of worship, and you came to this earth, and you suffered, and you went through a life that didn't work like it was supposed to, a life that wasn't comfortable, a life that wasn't monetarily blessed. And you showed us how to live that kind of life and how to find God and walk with God through the midst of it. Lord, that's our desire. In the midst of the discomfort, the difficulties when things don't go right as they so often don't, to learn to find you and walk with you and to glorify and enjoy you. Help us to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name.